I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSN presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening, welcome to Spooky South Coast, back on the air after a two-week hiatus. Thanks, Red Sox. Anyway, we are back and we are here. We have an action-packed paranormal potpourri show for you tonight. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and the science advisor Matt Moniz, and we are here to talk to you about all things paranormal. Now, uh, we actually have an interview to play for you conducted last Saturday night by Matt Moniz and myself with Faye Musselman at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. Lizzie uh, Borden's The Murders uh, that happened uh, 116 years ago, last Saturday, August 4th, was the anniversary of that. So while we were there, um, you know, just taking in all the uh, all the events going on, we sat down with Faye Musselman, who is one of the world's foremost scholars and collectors of all things Borden. And so we talked with her about the case and about a lot of these uh, theories surrounding it, the suspects, some of the stuff that's been discredited. She's read every book. She's read every paper. She knows exactly what's going on. So she's the person that we wanted to go to, and she gave us uh, an excellent discussion. If you'd like to check out her blog, you can go to Famous. That's uh, P-H-A-Y-E-M-U-S-S dot WordPress dot com. We'll have a link up on SpookySouthCoast.com so you can check that out. Uh, but now, uh, because we are pressed for time, we are going to go right into the interview with Faye Musselman conducted last Saturday night in the basement of the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. Interested in the Borden case? Well, it was in 1969 when I was pregnant with my son, and I used to take long walks to the library, looked up on a shelf one day, saw a book with a picture of a hatchet superimposed on a lace fan. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Well, that was Victoria Lincoln's book, A Private Disgrace, uh, Lizzie Borden by Daylight. So I bought that, read it completely through that night, went back the next day, said, what else have you got? The hook was in. So I read everything I could find on Lizzie Borden. By 1972, I was writing to the Fall River Historical Society and uh, to other authors. And by 1977, I made my first trip to Fall River and actually came to this house. I wrote to John McGinn, who at that time had only let in a few people, Agnes DeMille, uh, Senator Joseph Welch, a couple of other authors. But it really was a closed house. His granddaughter, Martha McGinn, later told me that I had charmed him. That's why he let me in. Well, my son was seven years old, Josh, and I had him wait outside on the steps because I didn't want to be distracted, you know, from what Mr. McGinn had to say. He gave me a two-hour tour. And he said, you know, you can let your boy in if you want. I said, no, 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 leave him outside. So um, on that visit in 77, I also met with the late, Florence Brigham, who's the past curator emeritus of the Fall River Historical Society. She introduced me to a lot of people in town at that time who I continued a correspondence with and continued reading. So that's how I got hooked. And for 40 years, I've been studying this case. And after 40 years, have I discovered the murder? No. I'll just say right now, I think it's to me, it's less a, a whodunit than a howdunit, mm-hmm. but that's to me. One of the things that makes this such a compelling case is it's got both those elements. You know, so often a theme in a murder or the popularity of a murder 
particularly uh, classic unsolves, have to do with the who done it. We know the facts of how it was done. In this case, we're not sure who did it, and we certainly don't know how it was done. Now, you put that foundation and then start layering it with uh, the Victorian era, the virginal spinster, the millionaire banker father who was a miser, uh, repressed sexuality, uh, the Borden name, the mill, uh, the mill town of which the Borden name was so important, and you end up getting textures and layers that are so intricately woven that it really is a, 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 a classic tapestry of a mystery, and it's an enduring one. This has been going on for 115 years, and I personally think it'll go on for another 150. I don't think it's ever going to be settled. But <clears throat> I often say, to understand Lizzie is to understand Fall River and what it meant to be a Borden. And in all the years I've been reading about the Bordens, the Braytons, the Durfees, it's still not enough. You still really have to absorb uh, how that gave her such a sense of entitlement because of how important and intricately connected these families were. They were bankers, they were involved in the, the Fall River steamship line, the ground transportation system, the trolley cars, the rail cars, uh, the mills, they owned the mills. In the 1890s there was virtually no middle class in Fall River. You either lived in the highlands and the hills, or you lived in the tenement housing and you worked the mills. There were a few uh, ethnic bakeries and other little shops, but on the whole, Fall River did not have a middle class. But how did it get that way? How mm -hmm. did this little seaport village get to be that way? Well, the Bordens were, uh, they came over, they descended from Richard Borden in the uh, uh, 1600s in Plymouth, Rhode Island. In fact, uh, a Borden was the first white child born in the area. That was the first generation. Lizzie is of the ninth generation. But the Bordens themselves began to acquire their wealth and power with the sixth and seventh generations. This would be Colonel Richard Borden. Colonel Richard Borden begot Richard Borden, who begot Abraham, who was Andrew's father. Abraham begot Andrew. Andrew begot Lizzie. <coughs> so with all this begotting, not everybody got. The Richard Borden from Colonel Richard had 14 children with his wife, Patty Bowen, of which Abraham, Andrew's father, was born. Now when he died, it was 1824, his uncle convinced the widow Borden uh, to give up her share of her husband's water rights. And that really was the demarcation of what's referred to as the greater Bordens and the lesser Bordens. So had she not done that, Andrew might not have had to work so hard for his own wealth, but they became the poor Bordens. There was uh, Cook Borden, who was a brother of Abraham. He became very wealthy with a lumber business, while Abraham, who's been called a fish peddler, really wasn't. 
he was kind of like a day laborer. He did gardening work and so forth, Andrew's father. So Andrew grew up knowing this lineage of, and the, his genealogy, his lineage of how rich his ancestors were. But his father, eh, not so much. And he swore he wasn't going to live like that. You can imagine him at father, uh, family gatherings where all this wealth is around them. And they lived down on Ferry Street. He shared a half house with his father on Ferry Street. They didn't move here until 1872 when Lizzie was 12. So Andrew spent most of his life trying to catch up with his, uh, his relations. And you got to know that Lizzie and Emma understood and had a grasp of their heritage. They knew about their bloodline. And for Lizzie in particular, I, I think she felt entitled. So here you have Andrew uh, slowly, methodically, but consistently acquiring more and more downtown traffic. His cousins and his uncles and all these people that he knew from his bloodline, they were in the transportation systems, the banking mills. They knew what was going to be happening. So he had the inside uh, information on what to buy. So it wasn't all that difficult for him to amass the fortune that he did. So as we get to the time of, of uh, around the time of the murders in, let's, let's say, 1890, go two years forward, he had been living in this house for a number of years, continually getting richer, his daughters getting older, and yet the way they lived was far beyond their means. This has often been written about. Lizzie, meanwhile, has gotten active in the church, so she goes to functions to her relatives up on the hill or other church people where they have hot and cold running water, where they have gas lighting, where they actually have flushing toilets. And her sense of entitlement builds. I think that uh, she egged on her father to let her go on this grand tour in 1890. Lizzie never traveled outside of Massachusetts in her life until then, so. Suddenly she's off on a 19-week tour of the Grand Tour in Europe, goes to Scotland, France, Italy, England. And uh, think of it, she's on this steamship. She's getting room service. She's seeing cathedrals and mansions and galleries and staying at hotels and, oh, God, the great life, hot baths, good food. Comes back 19 weeks later to this clapboard house and shabby part of town, mm -hmm. four women in the household, not a toilet, and she's got to know, I deserve more than this. I'm a borden. I'm entitled. We're, we don't have to live this way. So from what she was used to for 19 weeks, she comes back and she has to carry this chamber pot twice a day down flight of stairs, two flights of stairs, into this very cellar to empty it right over there. Right behind me, you can see. We, we probably should have moved the table over a little yeah. bit than if I'd known that. <laughs> so I think from those two years on, this this uh, household, this house, had a heavy sense of uh, lack of love, lack of cheer, certainly. It was the brooding hatred that I think Lizzie and Emma had of their stepmother mm -hmm. uh, for lots of reasons. Lizzie wanted more. She wanted more and she wanted to get out. She hated this house. And she was in fear of her stepmother 
getting any part of her father's fortune. So about a year after she returns, there's this mysterious burglary that happens. Interesting burglary. The intruder enters the house with two women in it, and Abby and Andrew are over at the farm in Swansea, and it's only Lizzie and Bridget, but this intruder goes straight to Abby's dressing room, straight to her dresser, takes her pocketbook, some horse car tickets, some personal items, and leaves unseen. Almost a prototype to what happened on August 4, 1892, without all the gore. There's no doubt in my mind that it was Lizzie. I think there was no doubt in Andrew's mind that it was Lizzie, who twice went to the police and said, you're never going to catch the real killer, so forget it. So now another year transpires this animosity building, and they may have acted civilly to one another, but things were not happy in this house. On August 3rd, 1892, John Morris visits. He is the uncle of their true mother, Sarah Morris, comes to visit and spends the night. But that Wednesday afternoon, he has a conversation with Andrew in the sitting room. And I think that's one of two Rosetta Stones to this case, whatever was said. Even Hosea Knowlton, the district attorney, commented later that if I could only know what was said in that conversation, I would have convicted somebody. He said that after Lizzie's trial. So they have a conversation that afternoon about 2, 3 o'clock, which Lizzie, by her own inquest testimony, overheard and said, quote, their voices disturbed me. If that conversation included Andrew saying that he was going to give the Swansea farm to Abby and give the girls less and so forth, that would have been enough to disturb Lizzie. What we do know, which is a fact, is the very next morning, Abby is slaughtered. Uh, an hour and a half later, Andrew is slaughtered. So something was said there that was the uh, tip Lizzie over the edge that she goes to Alice Russell with prophecies of doom. Now, <clears throat> the next day when the word got out about this, this had the impact of the Manson murders. It was so beyond the realm of comprehensions, comprehension of the Fall River Police, the general populace, be they rich or poor, it was just absolutely mind-boggling. And, it, you know, it's reported that some people left, uh, shut down their looms and left the mills and just came to stand outside and gawk at the house, wow. which people still do today. I mean, they don't leave work, but they stand outside and gawk at the house. And as the, as the word got out about this, and, and the shock still lasted that first day, people were just appalled to think that it could be a member of the family a Borden daughter. What often isn't written about, part of the shock of, and the residue of this, is what it meant to other Bordens. You know all those people that also came from the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th generation, sure, yeah. that also knew their lineage, that lived on the hill, that even had daughters named Elizabeth. So their daughters are off at a seminary or school or maybe even here at an elementary school, your name's Lizzie Borden, you know. 
And a father, I can just see the fathers in some of these households saying, no more. We will not discuss this. We do not discuss this in this house. That continued even after the trial. You had MCD Borden, Matthew Chalonier Durfee Borden, also one of the wealthy ones, son of Colonel Richard Borden, who had charge of the Borden interests in New York. He was connected. This was a man who graduated from Yale, who was in Skull and Bones, who uh, had a neighbor which was the Secretary of Commerce. Um, he, he was very well connected. So you can see him at men's clubs or whatever, and people say, hey, are you, you're not related to the Bordens of Farm Daniel. So you can imagine the embarrassment. God, I don't want to talk about this. That damn Lizzie, look at the trouble she's caused, yeah? And as Victoria Lincoln said, they huddled with their, those old families, they huddled with their private disgrace. That was an ap a very good name for her book because it was a private disgrace. And they did try to, some tried to protect Lizzie in, in a peer supportive until the trial was over. And then enough, we don't talk about it. It's bad for business. It's bad for uh, our children. Where you know, it's a scandal we don't want to deal with anymore. But they knew there was no mystery to the Bordens or the O'Malley's, whether you lived on the hill or below the hill, as to who did this. They knew, but they didn't talk about it. So this case that has many textured layers, a mystery that's got the two basic foundations unanswered after 150 years as to the who and the how, still rattles our brains. Name one other case that has all the elements that this does. And name one other case that has all the same elements that you can come to the house, the very house, sit in the basement. I'm looking in the area where the handleless hatchet was found. Go in and out, up and down the stairs, touch things, listen, measure, stay up all night. Virtually unchanged structurally from the time it was built in 1845. Incredible. You cannot do this anywhere else. So vast. Everywhere you turn, like you're saying, Everywhere you turn in this house, there's a connection to what went on. There's, there's something that we've heard, even if it's something anecdotal about the family. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's, uh, you can stand in the spot. Like I, when I first came here for the first time, uh, I'd had my, you know, preconceived notions about the case and about the murders, and I never realized. Um, I always thought that the door to the to the guest room where Mrs. Borden was slain was actually behind her in the f crime scene photograph. It would have been like in front of the bed. And I didn't realize that while she was making the bed in that spot, she would have had a direct on view of who was coming exactly. into the room. And I, until you can come here and see that that's for yourself right. and, and experience it, it just changes the way that the, that the case You're works in your mind. You're absolutely right. And that's what happens to people. And that's one of the, the, the good things about this house, coming as a guest, where you can actually get into, change your physicality to, to reenact some of these mm -hmm. things. So when you get on your knees and pretend that you're, you're dealing with that that bedspread. Yeah, you realize, hey, my uh, line, sight, sight line is right to that guest room door. Am I going to be alarmed if Lizzie walks through it? No. Lizzie comes in this room all the time. But am I going to be allow, alarmed if suddenly I'm sensing that she's two feet next to me? I might turn and look up and... Exactly. 
dive shock. And I, what, I, what I thought is that you'd have more defensive wounds if it was somebody you didn't know coming up the stairs because uh, there's not too many people that are going to be able to, if it's a stranger, sneak up with an axe. Uh, That's right. You know, because you, you're, you're going to start questioning them as soon as they start walking up. But if it's a family member, they can yeah. get, like you said, right in real close before you even know what's yeah. happening. And, you know, it wasn't known until the autopsy of, of Abby that she had this frontal flap wound. I mean, they were so busy looking at the... 19 slices to the back of her mm -hmm. head that they didn't notice that flap wound till later and uh, I think it was the first wound as she boom and and that she died of shock according to the autopsy but I think that uh, was a fatal blow and the rest were sort of gratuitous as Lizzie straddled her or the assailant straddled her if we want to be but when prejudiced but when I'm probably when you look prejudiced. at the amount of uh, cuts to to each of them. I mean, it's 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 a crime of passion. There's there's something behind it. It's not just. I mean, I'm saying this having never killed anything with a hatchet myself. It's hatred. So I I can't imagine. You know, uh, you'd have to keep. Wa I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure. You know, it, it seems more like it was passion. Like it was. Right. You know, all that stuff welling up inside and and coming out through that device. Yes. Yes. I think it was rage and hatred. And I think with Andrew, it was a lot of you love her, not me, and you, you know. Um, or it could have been, it, it could have been, you know, why'd you make me do this, too? You know, it's your, it's your fault I had to do this, and, you know. You're the second person who's, who's used that phrase in the last two days. Last night, somebody said the exact same thing, that it's, uh, that she internalized it. You made me do it. It's like when you get so mad at a child telling them over and over and over, and you finally go, how many times did I, look what you made me do, damn yep. it, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're the second person that's, that said that, and I think there could be a lot of truth to that. Um, I think I think Victoria Lincoln, where she got a lot of things wrong, she was spot on in a lot of things mm -hmm. as well. And she uses a, a comparison there about uh, a man who sends his girlfriend a diamond bracelet, wife finds out, so he sends her a fur coat. It's still, you love her more than you love me, you know, mm -hmm. that Lizzie... Um, Lizzie was that kind of jealous of Abby's getting Andrew's affection. But <clears throat> getting back to the, the Bordens of Fall River and dealing with a Borden as a prime suspect and Andrew, Andrew who comes from Abraham right up to Colonel Borden for God's sake, which gave us Thomas and you know all these and Jerome and all these prominent people. Boy, this, this touched too close to home. This touched my blood. This touched my family, my lineage, my heritage, my good name, my business. You know, uh, it, it, and Lizzie, on the other hand, she knew too. She knew too how important her Borden name was and what she was entitled to. She knew how her her cousin Jerome lived, and her great aunt, and great uncle, and so forth and so on. And uh, by God, she wanted more. She wanted something better, and she particularly wanted it when she came back from Europe. You know, if you strip everything away, you know, this house is gone. Half the documentaries and movies are gone. What have you got left? Money. Money is usually the root of everything. Mm -hmm. Daddy had it. She wanted it. She got it. And that, that when you strip it all away, it gets down to that. Thank God that really isn't all there is. 
thank goodness it isn't stripped away because you have this textured fabric that's just layered and layered and it's what pulls us into the weave and it's a sweet symmetry to comment on the fact that this was a town <clears throat> that built its wealth on the manufacture of cloth. So this rich tapestry is, is something that we're going to wrap ourselves around with for a lot more decades. It, it seems as more and more people become interested in this case and it takes on you know, a, a new interest level. Like, for example, in what we do, I mean, we're talking about the paranormal each week and the fact that you know, this is, I, f I forget exactly, I think it was Travel Channel or, or one of those networks named this the most haunted place in America. Uh, which, you know, for those who have had experiences in here, I'm sure they'd agree. Uh, so you have that interest level coming from something that's very popular right now. The paranormal is, is really taking off. And that brings people in and they say, okay, well, I know kind of what happened there, but let me look into it a little bit more. And then they're drawn into the case mm -hmm. and they get into the details of it and it just keeps growing and growing and growing because it's one of those things, it's, it's, it's done, it's over with you would think that by now you've discovered everything you could discover about it and just new theories new suspects new po you know new possibilities new ideas for motives just keep popping up it's it's the the case that won't ever close yeah that that explosion in the interest of the paranormal is is uh, something that fascinates me i'm not quite sure why it suddenly happened uh why in today's society all ages not just a 19-year-old goth, but a 60-year-old dentist is interested in the paranormal today. And um, so I don't know exactly why, but I have to ask myself, what, if any kind of residue is here that is receptive to people that have a greater sensory perception than I do, because I don't feel it, except for one place. Yet so many people do. And the, the current owner and the past owner swear this place is haunted and active. And I respect the opinions of both of those people. They're not wackos <laughs> by any means. So if they tell me, oh, yes, the house is out and there's this and there's that, i got to believe there's something to it. It's just that I haven't experienced it, except for one time. And as a matter of fact, that was exactly a year ago today. And... Uh, the house was filled with a number of paranormal investigators of all types. And uh, uh, one gentleman in particular had a cot set up down here in the basement to sleep. It was like 19, 20 people upstairs. And I wanted to get away from it for a while and rest. I was so exhausted. And I laid down on the cot. And the place was dark. I was all by myself. Nobody was here. Everybody was up, upstairs. And I felt three fingers run down my shoulder and back. And I sat up up front and said, who's here? Didn't hear anything. But it wasn't, you know, sometimes you've had a, have you ever had a spider run down oh, your yeah. shoulder? Or you walk into a spider web? No, no, this wasn't that. This was three fingers down. My so I went upstairs and I was just so shook up. I went outside smoking a cigarette and these three paranormals came with, hey, what's the matter? And I told them, and they told me that there was an entity here there was a new entity here that had come through a portal that was made because of the seances that were done here. And that this was not a friendly entity. It was kind of a mean, playing little tricks, but wouldn't really hurt you thing. And I thought, oh, Jesus, this is what I need to know. You know, I've been coming here for 14 years, never a problem, and now i got to go. So 
Yes, you're right. They're, they're, uh, it draws a lot of people. A lot of people are, are interested in going to places that have a history of being haunted. They're anticipatory of seeing ghostly apparitions or something, you know. And I say, hey, number one, if it brings in people and keeps this place prosperous, great, I'm all for <laughs> it. Number two, if you have a, an experience that I poo-poo off because I don't, Maybe you are of a different chemistry than I am, and that's why you feel, see, or hear it, and I don't. And, and that's what—that's why we're trying to spread the word about the paranormal activity here, because it does bring people into the case, and it does renew that interest level. Uh, I mean, I think as long as people are coming here for, you know, that reason, they're still going to take the tour, they're still going to read the books and watch the documentaries that are available here, and they're going to say, okay, you know, this is something that deserves a little bit more time than just the backstory to the ghost that I'm looking for. Right, right. And a lot of people come here that have no interest in, in that. Mm -hmm. People come here, we get a lot of, they get a lot of bookings. I feel so part of the family. <laughs> You're here, connected right? here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people come here just because they like to stay at B&Bs. They don't care what kind they are. They like B&Bs. A lot of people come here because they're interested in the history of the case proper or Fall River. Uh, or they've been here before and the beds are just so comfortable and the staff is so nice, the service is so good. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't get a commission. I don't need to push this place. But I'm telling you that is the only B&B in the country that you get the kind of freedom that you do. If you want to stay up all night and roam around in this basement, they'll let you. You know, so you really get your bang for the buck here. And if you want to do your own investigations, which many do, they bring their recording equipment and uh, they set things up and hope to get something, or they just sit up all night reading the book. She's got a wonderful library she's building on the case. So it's just a terrific place to come. Plus, plus, here in Fall River and where this house sits, you don't even need a car to walk Andrew's last walk to go to the Fall River Historical Society. You could It's walking distance to Maplecroft. You may want to know a little further to go to Oak Grove Cemetery but you can do that without even a car and what you see at the same time are a lot of the mills still standing and, and so many of the original structures still standing so one gets a visual sense of the history walking around here now and, and you mentioned Victoria Lincoln's book and one thing that I was kind of new to me that I hadn't heard until I read her book was the uh, the idea that she was actually in some sort of seizure when she committed the murders. Is that something that you... Yeah, the petite mall epilepsy, I don't mm -hmm. buy into that. You know, you always got to have a hook. Everybody's got to have a hook. That was her hook. Yeah. And she didn't even need that. I think Victoria could have uh, uh, won the Edgar Award and you know, had that book go into its 30th printing or whatever it's been without that hook. But I, I also believe that she believed it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she also had that insider's perspective, yeah. too, of that, you know, on the hill type of Fall yeah, River yeah. coming from that background herself. She had her thumb on the pulse of what it was like. You know, you got to remember her heritage. Her father was Jonathan Thayer Lincoln, who wrote The Dinner Pail, City of the Dinner Pail, classic, classic book dealing with the uh, conflicts between the mill owners and the workers. Um, she also... Um, her, her grandfather was Leontine Lincoln. Um, his, he had a son named also Leontine Lincoln. They were involved in the banking, the schools. Uh, she was very much connected. She knew. Now, here's an interesting thing about her. She talks about she left Fall River 
in her dancing days, you know. She left Fall River in uh, 1927, February of 1927, the year Lizzie died. Victoria Lincoln married a man named Isaac Watkins at the Church of Ascension on f in February of 1927, officiated by the Reverend Cleveland. Reverend Cleveland, six months later, officiated at Lizzie's funeral at Maplecroft, you know, the services there. But she married this Isaac Watkins that you don't hear a lot about. And when you think this was the Lincoln family, uh, it wasn't a big, big event. It was a small wedding with a reception at home. And then she immediately moved to Cambridge with her new husband. But through her grandfather and her father, she knew about Lizzie. And she was raised the way Lizzie would like to have been raised. She went to the party. She was popular in school. She was editor of the BMC Durfee uh, High School Yearbook. So when, when Victoria writes about the Lizzie Borden case in A Private Disgrace, I believe 80% of what she says. The rest of it is a little exaggeration and conjecture, but we have that in all the books. Well, yeah, I was going to say from there, from her book, you have more of the each, like you said, each book has a hook now. Each book has an angle, and there's been so many different theories posturized. You know, and the biggest one right now, the one that people keep coming back to now, is the possibility of an incestuous relationship in the family. Mm -hmm. uh, be it, you know, as we were talking earlier, Morris and, and one of the daughters, or Morris and Lizzie, or or uh, Andrew and Lizzie, and it's every time that they have a Ghost Hunters University here. Uh, or there's a seance here that always pops up. It's always a question that people want to ask. Probably because we like to dig into the sordid stuff. Yeah. You know, you come for the soap opera and stay for the facts. Yeah. But well, that was a popular theory that first surfaced about 15 years ago at the Lizzie Borden Centennial, held at BMC Durfee High School, uh, uh, BCC College, Bristol mm -hmm. Community College in 1992. And uh, the compendium book edited by Jules Reichenbusch, you could still get. And there's a number of essays of papers that were presented that focus on the abuse factor, uh, the incest factor. Um, I've personally felt that there wasn't anything to that, that uh, Andrew was uh, sexually, uh, wasn't sexually more motivated. Are you sleeping here tonight, Andrew? No. All right, so you're all set. What are you worried about? Every time I, I, think the, I think the only thing that turned Andrew on was the accumulation of money. Mm -hmm. And if Lizzie was sexually abused, I believe it would have been from Morse, not Andrew. And, I, and if when it happened, I think it could have happened at the time that when he was visiting and Emma was away at Wheaton Seminary. And there's, you know, <coughs> at this point, I know it sounds, you know, clearly to us like, like you've made your mind up as to, you know, who was involved and... and, and who did it, whether or not Lizzie was guilty or innocent, but a lot of people have proposed so many other characters that are involved in the story. Minor characters who are mentioned in passing uh, that might have been, you know, part of just an initial cover-up. Is there any way we can wade through all these stories and actually come up with an actual time frame of who the people were involved in that day? Who was in and out of the house? Who had contact with, with Andrew Borden? when he was out on the street, do we know, you know, can we put our finger on who it was and, and eliminate a lot of some of these other stories that have popped up over the years? Hey, anything's possible, Tim. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, they're still flinging Lee Harvey Oswald around, aren't they? That's there there are a number of suspects, and let me let me tell you, they uh, and we talk about books with hooks. That's the, you know they've come out that way. It was a conspiracy. It was Bridget. It was Emma. It was you know, <clears throat> but all the credible evidence pointed to Lizzie, who also had motive, means, and opportunity. You had Arnold Brown with the William S. Borden, the illegitimate son. Yeah. No. That's been discredited on many counts. I won't even waste your airtime going <laughs> through it. But Emma could not have done it physically. There was no way she could have gotten from Ware Junction to New Bedford to the train step back in, or even on a horse. You know, can you see her whipping the horse, trying to beat horse feet fast? Um, John Morris. John Morris could have done Abby, could not have done Andrew. An intruder is the one that's the most laughable to me. Uh, there's a lot of people out on that street. They didn't see anybody come and go inside the house. Uh, you know, forensics today, if there was CSI Fall River, uh, would they find that little piece of hair, that blonde hair that didn't match anybody else in the house? You know how they say that if you're in, you always leave something of yourself, whether it's a skin flake, what have you. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you this. I, I sound like I poo-poo off anybody's theory that it was anybody but Lizzie. But after 40 years, and I've studied this for more years than some people have been on the planet yet, I have vacillated from Lizzie to the conspiracy to Morris to an intruder and back again and back again. And the more I dig, the more I have settled in on Lizzie. And once I settled in on Lizzie, I haven't wavered since. So until little Susie Q, whose great aunt Carrie left her the house with the attic with the trunk that's got the letter in it with Lizzie's signature, I'm not buying any other theory. You know, I, if Lizzie, if Lizzie has anything written down, which I highly doubt, that points to her guilt, we're never going to conclude this case. And. Uh, we're never going to find the murder weapon either. That's the second Rosetta. Yeah, I told you the first mm -hmm. Rosetta Stone. That's the second one. It gets down to, to me, three possibilities. That handleless hatchet was the murder weapon. If not, then the one on Crow's Roof, the barn there that was discovered a few days before the trial, was the murder weapon. Or the murder weapon never was found, and it's either hidden in this house or Lizzie managed to make it disappear, perhaps with or without the help of somebody else. And, and you can make any one of those three work. I mean, if you tweak things around, you can make any one of those those three possibilities of the murder weapon sure. work. Especially where, you know, this house alone, if it is in this house, there's so many places that it could be that, that are untouched and, and, and Leanne and Donald won't let us go digging around. We came in one day with pickaxes in hand, and they were like, no, go away. See, I believe for a long time that she dropped the murder weapon in the privy. Well, Leanne went out there when they were doing the excavation, but did you see how they did the... You see that equipment with the big jaws? Boom! Mm -hmm. So the wood would have been completely disintegrated, but the metal would have been there. And if boom, it got one of those and it dumped it, meanwhile, Leanne's still there scraping, <laughs> it's gone. It's yeah. never gone. Uh... Why did she place herself out in the yard in the first place? Why didn't she place herself in the cellar? Wouldn't it have been the easiest thing to say, I went down to the cellar to do some personal business, and when I came upstairs, I found my father. I never heard or saw a thing. 
Well, if you did it and you ditched the hatchet down here, that's the last place you're going to say you were. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you took the hatchet outside and threw it up on Crow's Barn and you're coming back and this Hyman Lubinsky, the 19-year-old ice cream peddler, passes by, sees you, damn, I've been seen. God, God, now i got to say I was out in the yard. I've been seen. And so she talks about this noise. Did it make a clanking noise when it landed up on the roof? And, and the interesting thing about that is she tells this, I, I was in the yard, heard a distressing noise, heard a sound, heard a groan, rushed right in for about the first couple hours. Once she she realizes nobody heard anything, nobody said anything about a noise, she doesn't mention a noise anymore. By the time it gets to her inquest quest testimony, you know, she's eating beers, looking for sinkers, comes back in, picks up a chip off the floor, takes her hat, puts it on the table, opens it, you know, no more about hearing a distressing noise and rushing in. So, I got to tell you, though, I love Lizzie. I understand her. I feel sorry for her. You know, yes, but does one bad day of gross bad behavior make a bad person? No. <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> she... I can imagine how it was for her living in this house, being a warden, understanding that. This whole thing, I can understand the rage and what would drive her to it. Did she ever do anything else that harmed anybody? You know, Quite the contrary, actually. That's right. And in, her, in her later years, she devoted a lot of her money to helping animals and, yeah. and children. Lizzie and Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, they had one bad day. Come on, cut them some <laughs> fuck. And, well, and OJ, too. I guess you could. Say. Uh, well, that, it's funny because a lot of people do. They they parallel the case, though. They, you know, uh, the board murders crime of the century for the for the nineteenth century. OJ trial crime of the century for the twentieth century. And if the like you said, if the forensics evidence and everything was available, and the murder weapon is still missing in both cases. Yeah, yeah. If if the if the uh, forensics were available, n- you know, then that were for the OJ case, it would have been solved in a day. You know, but it, that mystery that keeps it going, and and the fact that you know Lizzie, in effect, was out golfing instead of looking for the real killers for the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, just just like OJ. So there's there's some other you know funny little mysteries to this case. <coughs> Morse goes to get fresh eggs. Why didn't they serve eggs Thursday morning instead of that five day old mutton? <laughs> I mean, was that eggs not for household consumption and only for Andrew to peddle for a dollar more? A penny more, I mean. I, I never have understood that. you got farm-fresh eggs in the house. Why are you eating that god-awful mutton? Uh, here's another thing. that's uh, These are things that I think are obvious mm-hmm. that people don't comment on much. Another one would be uh, the Eli Benz testimony. There's people that believe she she didn't go to buy, attempt to buy poison. No, no, no. You know, they had the police were running a little scam where they were sending women in to see if pharmacists were selling it illegally, blah, blah, blah. Well, if that was true, that the police was were doing that, and certainly the defense knew that the police were doing that, yet the defense didn't make a big deal about it at the trial. What they did make a big deal about was keeping Eli Bentz and his two supporting witnesses corroborating witnesses off the stand. There's two things that the defense argued the most about, and one was the exclusion of her inquest testimony, and the second was the exclusion of her attempt to buy prussic acid at Smith's Pharmacy. They knew damn well she had, 
and uh, that whole thing of of, uh, of uh, their battle to keep it off the stand, and it was subsequently ruled inadmissible mm -hmm. by the court. The jury never got to hear. If they got to hear her inquest testimony and that testimony she tried to buy poison the day before, they might have. I'm not saying they would have. They might have uh, voted guilty. You know, you got to remember something here. When, when uh, the conspiracy theorists, I don't care what the conspiracy is, you got to remember something. Carlos Michello, the great mafia don of New Orleans, said, "Alleged mafia don." Alleged. <laughs> Who's he alleged? Uh, Andrew's allegedly dead. <laughs> He said, three people can keep a secret if two are dead. And that, that pretty well is true. Um, I think Lizzie took it to her grave, and that's why we're never going to know. God bless her. Unless, like I say, you know, and Aunt Carrie's trunk in the attic, there's a letter signed by Lizzie. Um, don't you just love it this way, though? Oh, I... It's, you almost don't want it to ever be sold. Yeah. You know, it, let this it, because it's a, you're not only appreciating the facts of this case, you're appreciating a lifestyle and era, um, the differences between then and now. I mean, it's it's like like you were saying before, it's so rich in the textures of it that if it was solved, it would just be another footnote in history. Yeah. <coughs> Jack the Ripper isn't. You know, this is this is who is De Quincey wrote about what is appealing of a crime. And it's not just the flash of a knife across a throat in a dark alley. He was using that analogy. He was talking about the richness and depth and texture of it. That's what this case has. Jack the Ripper, England has their Jack of the Ripper. We have Lizzie. It's been said many times. But, oh my God, is ours better? <laughs> ours is so much better. <laughs> neater, neater, neater. I'd rather spend the night here than in the, uh, <laughs> in the slums of London. So. Yeah. We'll, we'll take this. Well, Faye, we thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. All right, so there you have it. I talked last week with Faye Musselman on the anniversary of the murders. We'll be right back after the news with more Spooky South Coast, including what does the Mothman have to do with the I-35 bridge collapse out in Minnesota? We're going to talk about that and more right here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast is back. I see you shiver. With anticip Well we're waiting. Patience. I'm not afraid. You will be. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And what a great interview that was with Faye Musselman, one of the uh, world's foremost experts on all things Bordinia. 
She is a collector of Lizzie Borden-related uh, items. Uh, she knows the history better than anybody. She's read all the books. Uh, uh, Matt Moniz and myself, we've we both read extensively on the case and, and the goings-on uh, back on August 4th, 1892, and we were amazed at some of the stuff she was saying. Uh, she is a definite wealth of knowledge when it comes to this case. We may have read the books maybe once or twice. She's able to quote passages out of any of them at any point. Because the great thing about her, she's actually somebody that these authors go out and seek now for her expertise. Uh, David Rehack, who wrote the book, Did Lizzie Borden Axe for It? Yeah, I, I don't write them, folks. I just read them. He actually uh, talked with Faye extensively, and she appears in his book a number of times, and and uh, she's very well known on the Internet and people that study the case. So uh, definitely check out her website. That's um, Faye Muss, you know, like famous. P-H-A-Y-E-M-U-S-S dot WordPress dot com. And we'll, we'll have it linked up at SpookySouthCoast.com if it isn't already by the time you hear this. So, and for those who haven't been hearing us the last couple of weeks, you haven't missed anything because we haven't been on the air because of the Red Sox. But we did do a great episode of the show uh, with David Oman, who owns the house that was built on the property where uh, the Tate murders took place as part of the Manson family's uh, murder spree. And we talked to him... Uh, just about all things going on at that house. We talked to him about the movie that he's created uh, based around those events. And uh, that was a, a special podcast-only show that you can check out if you go to SpookySouthCoast.com because uh, we were going to have it on the air and then the Red Sox went late. So, But it's out there and it's there for everybody to listen to. And uh, that's uh, our little programming notes. Um, we actually had a chance, uh, Matt, after the show went off the air, uh, well, after the interview was over, uh, on the uh, on the August fourth uh, recording there with Faye, you and I and and Andrea Caplet and Colleen and Faye Musselman, you know people from the from the house, uh, the, from the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast. We all stayed in the basement for like another two hours just talking. Correct. And uh, Faye was really interested in hearing about a lot of the paranormal stuff because she'd heard that it was happening, but she hadn't heard the reports. Uh, with the reasoning for the reports, uh, what we thought she was interested in our theories of what was going on. So we we spent a great deal of time talking with her. And as we were talking, things started to get a little bit creepy. People were seeing things out of the corner of their eye. Uh, things were whispering into people's ears. Things happening to us? Yeah. Well, of course, we're, we're breaking everything down and going up the back staircase to, to go outside because <laughs> we're in the basement. And I turn around with my arm full of chairs and I say, whatever it is down here, don't push me on the stairs. And what happens when I get to the top stair? But two hands on my back. Pfft. Luckily, I did not fall over. So I know. As soon as you said that, it's like, that was a mistake. Well, we had some uh, some other interesting uh, occurrences there as well that we we can't quite tell you about yet. But uh, last Wednesday we were there for with an interview for Soco Magazine. Uh, it'll be the October issue. It comes out the end of September. So look for it wherever you get Soco Magazine. It's a free publication that's found all over the South Coast. Uh, a great magazine. That the presentation is just outstanding. Uh, it's it's better than most magazines that you'll buy off the shelf. Uh, just in terms of the the paper, the stock paper, the color, glossy photograph. I mean, it's just an excellent publication. Well put together. Absolutely. And and it's free. So why not pick it up, especially if uh, if we're going to be in it and you can read all about what went on at the Lizzie Borden house. Who cares about us? But, I mean, the actual occurrences that were going on that night. And the writer was there every step of the way. Whenever anything went on, he was right with us. So he's uh, he's had plenty of um, opportunity to document some stuff. Hopefully he believes it. Hopefully it was enough to help convince him. Well, the stuff that we got towards the end of the night there that we got on video, that, that to me, uh, 
definitely got my attention. And, and what our plan is is once the article comes out and then we can actually start talking about it is we'll, we'll have uh, Jay, the author, come in and talk to us for a few minutes and, and uh, then we'll release all the evidence that we have. We'll put it all up on SpookySouthCoast.com and people can check it out. But until then, you know, we agreed to sit on it just because we don't want to we don't want to trump the story, uh, give them the scoop because they they really wanted to focus on a local South Coast haunting, and we said, hey, nothing better than Lizzie Boyd in bed and breakfast because it's the only place that we could take them. That a we know they could spend the night without putting anybody out because it's a bed and breakfast, so they're used to that kind of thing. And and b it was one of the few places where we knew that something would happen while we were there because more and more every time we're there something goes on. Right, because most people that have a haunted home, they generally don't want the general public knowing about it, number one. Number two, they're just like anybody else. You don't want a stranger just coming into your house to, you know. Especially now where the paranormal has become so popular. You know, who knows what kind of nut jobs will be showing up on your door. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, that's the the chance that Leanne and Donald took with the Lizzie Boyd in bed and breakfast. They they buy this place and then nut jobs like us show up on the door, but they... At this point now, they have to let us in because... We, we buy pizza? We, yeah, we, have, we buy pizza and we have their phone number so we can keep harassing them until they open the door. But, you know, absolutely. I mean, we, we're not just saying that stuff happens to us there either. Other investigators that go there, the Ghost Hunters Universities that go there with Christopher Moon, the Night Watchers group is coming in May of 08. I mean, these are all people that when they go there, they get documented happenings. So... Um, I highly recommend that anybody that's a paranormal investigator that wants to get a chance to check out the house, contact me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. We're putting together some special investigator nights uh, for the fall where groups can come in, and instead of having to spend the money to rent out the entire house, we can split it up amongst two or three different groups. It cuts the cost down to about $50 a head to have the chance to investigate all night because they, they have to make the money. I mean, it's a business. They can't. Yeah, just... but there's a limited amount of people you can have in there, too. Yeah, it's maximum 20 because of fire laws and everything. So we can put 20 people in there from a combination of different groups. We like it because it forces a bunch of different groups to work together, to share equipment, to share technique and learn technique. Exactly. So the the fact that it actually helps the community and it helps them get into the house when they might not have had the chance otherwise to investigate, it's it's a win-win for everybody. So uh, just contact me, Tim, at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, maybe we'll set up a separate email address further on down the line. But for now, that's the best way to do it, and I'll let you know what's going on, and, and we'll keep up to date with it. So, And then when we can talk more about it, maybe some of the evidence that we got this time will be enough to make you want to go out there and investigate yourself. Matt, you game for that? You're going to be there for investigator nights? Sure. Why not? Because we're, we're still waiting for you to have an experience there. Of course, if you don't leave at 930, maybe know, something can happen. Uh, Last know, one in the door, first one out. The day job, the day job, kind of hurts the paranormal investigating. I, I, was, I, was, I was afraid I was going to turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> but uh, I'm the same way, though. You know, that was uh, Matt and I work together in our day jobs, and, and if I don't have to be there bright and early, he has to be there bright and early. So I, I kind of knew that when I picked the night for us to all go. <laughs> figured, hey, if somebody's going to get up early, it might as well be you. All right, so. Uh, why don't we uh, get back to something? Do, do we used to do a segment on this show uh, right around this time where we talked about the weird happenings? I think we did, but I can't remember what it was. I don't remember what it was either. I didn't even know the... I don't know. What, what was the title? Uh, I don't, if you press that button, there's probably something there that'll remind us. Which button? There's a lot of buttons. Uh, S-S-C-W-I-W. What's W-I-W? More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today, which is wonderful. Weird stuff. 
Like it's the week and weird. Hey, I remember now. It's all coming back to me. All right. Well, the first story from the week and weird comes out of Studio City, California, and uh, this is something that was going all around the internet last week. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit. We we did try to verify the story, just so you know, before I start reading it. We tried to verify these claims, and, and nothing's happened as if yet. But is the Big Brother house actually haunted? the house that's on the CBS television program Big Brother. There's a buzz on the internet the last uh, couple of days that apparitions have been seen by feed viewers and that a few of the house guests are aware of the presence. Now, for those who don't know, Big Brother is a reality show where uh, people are picked to live in a house and cameras document their every move. There's nowhere that you can't be seen by cameras. Um, I watched the first season and they had cameras in the bathroom then, so I don't know if that's still the case now, but... And uh, 24 hours a day, you can view these cameras on the Big Brother website. And I guess that's what's going on is uh, during the course of the night, people are checking in and they're, they're seeing some, some strange activity. On the night of August 4th, well, that, that date rings a bell, there were several comments on blogs and message boards that a white ghostly apparition was seen floating around in one of the bedrooms. Uh, one of the house guests, uh, her name is Jessica, seemed to be looking in the direction of this apparition and appeared to be alarmed. As well, there has been speculation by viewers that increased, quote, diary room activity. That's where they do the little testimonials to the camera. Where the production staff and house guests communicate is related to some of the increasing paranormal activity within the house. Recently, there has been an increased drain of battery power in the microphones used by the house guests. A paranormal investigator who is also a fan of the show commented on a message board that this is common when spirit activity is present. Of course, we all know that. There has been speculation that the, quote, spirit may be that of a construction worker who actually died during the construction of the current Big Brother house two years ago. CBS has not commented on this after several inquiries by fans. I actually took it to the point where I got through to the production company, Endemol Productions, and I got through to their publicist. Um, I won't give his name up, but I got, I got all the way up to their publicist, and I still haven't gotten any kind of comment on this from the production people. From any, uh, I said, you know, give us a house guest, have them come on and talk to us. I'd love to get this Jessica. They do have a media lockdown when people are in the house. And I think that because this, the series is still ongoing, they might have a lockdown around people that have been voted out as well. So because it's all live and going on as we speak, uh, that's probably what's holding things up. But as soon as we can get word out of CBS or out of Endemol, I promise you we will get it to you. We will definitely be following up on this story. And if anybody has the video feed, if anybody sits there in their perverted sanctity of their own perverted home and records every moment of the Big Brother webcams, uh, we would love to see some, some, uh, some still shots or some video from those as well. So, of the ghosts. Yeah, well, I mean, if you get anything else, too. You know, and, and I just realized something, by the way. Let me just throw this out there. Happy 10th anniversary, Jenny Cam. Somebody told me that it was just the 10th anniversary of Jenny Cam, which is no longer functioning. But uh, thank God for Jenny Cam, because what would the Internet be today without it? Thank you, Jennifer Ringley, Ridgely, <laughs> whatever her name was. Matt Moniz, save me here. All right, got something from Routers in Barcelona, Galactic Suite. The first hotel was planned for in space. Experts 
are to open the business in 2012 and would allow guests to travel around the world in 80 minutes. This Barcelona-based architect says that the Space Hotel will be the most expensive in the galaxy, costing $4 million for a three-day stay, which is quite exorbitant. During the time that guests would see the sun rise 15 times a day and use Velcro suits to crawl around their pod rooms by sticking themselves to the wall like Spider-Man. Company director Xavier Claremont said that the three-bedroom boutique hotel joined up pod structure, which makes it all look like a model of, of molecules, was dedicated by the fact that each pod room had to fit inside a rocket and to be taken into space. Well, it makes sense, you know, that everything's got to be compartmentalized. You've got to be able to make it all fit. Not a lot of building materials already out in space. So. Yeah. Or and forget the union guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't even can't even get them to to show up on time, let alone show up ninety three million miles away. Space Teamsters. God, I can imagine that right. That might be where Jimmy Hoffa is, though. Yeah, it could be. Its bathrooms in zero gravity are the biggest challenge, says Claremont. How to accommodate the more intimate activities the guests is not as easy. Okay. The hundred mile high club. Okay, but they may have solved the issue of how to take a shower in weightlessness. Guests will enter a spa room which bubbles of water will be floated around. When the guests are not admiring the view from the portholes, they will take part in scientific experiments on space travel. The Galactic Suite began as a hobby for a former aerospace engineer, said Claremont, until a space enthusiast decides to make it Science fic- make the science fiction fantasy a reality by fronting most of the three billion needed to build the hotel. An American company intent on colonizing Mars, which sees Galaxy Suite as a first step, has since come on board with private investors from Japan, the United States, and the United Arab Emirates are involved in the talks. Galactic Suite said the four million price included more than just three nights in space, but guests are also get eight weeks of intensive training at the James Bond-style space camp on a tropical island. So you got to do eight weeks' worth of work to be able to go have a vacation for three days? I guess you actually need that vacation by then. Well, you got to figure most space flights, that they, they train months and months for these things. And then when you get up there, you have to con- conduct scientific experiments while you're on your space vacation? I'd be down with that. I'll tell you what. I know who's signed up for the first uh, first flight. You know it, Lance Bass. You know he's going <laughs> up there. Uh, he's got four million. I'm pretty sure he's got four million dollars left. I don't know. I think he blew it all the last time. Did he? He wasted the, it all the last trying time to get up, he tried to get up there. Well, uh, Joey Fatone's having some success. Maybe he'll lend him four million. You know who? You know who's making a lot of money? That that Justin Timberlake kid. He's a, he's a talented performer. So. He's got yeah. a bright bright future ahead of him. All right, Matt, since... Uh, I didn't know you knew that much about... Yeah, well... Big fan. Now, that you know the Spice Girls reuniting. Are they? All right, that wraps it up for this All week's right. American Top 40. <laughs> Back to the week in weird. All right, you guys all know about Hello Kitty, right? Yes. Big fans? Oh, the police? Big fans, yes. <laughs> uh, Hello Kitty has invaded Thailand, so to speak, or at least the uh, Thai police force. 
They should institute this here in this country. <laughs> Thai police officers who break laws and station policies will be forced to wear armbands featuring a Hello Kitty as punishment. Police officers caught littering, parking in prohibited areas, or arriving late for shifts will be forced to stay in the division office and wear an armband depi- depicting Hello Kitty sitting atop two hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Though officers won't be wearing the armbands in public. Acting Chief of uh, Crime Suspicion Suppression Division in Bangkok says simple warning. <laughs> oh. Simple warnings no longer work. The new twist is expected to make them feel guilt and shame to prevent them from repeating the offense, no matter how minor. Police caught breaking the law will will be subject to the same fines and penalties as any member of the public, and the CDC's belief that getting tough on petty misdemeanors would lead to fewer cases of more serious offenses, including abuse of power and mistreatment of of the public by police officers. Oh, so in other words, this would never happen here, then? I guess not. Well, in the United States, we, we have a different word for it. We call it hazing. That's actually a, it's not really a condoned in the workplace. But that, that you, you know, my sister would love to go to Thailand, become a cop, and then get in trouble <laughs> to get would. a free Hello Kitty armband. I wonder what would happen if, uh, I mean, they just stick that armband on for littering or being late. What do they do if you, like, do something worse? Yeah. Do you have to wear some sort of strawberry... Shortcake outfit? Or I think you have to actually dress up like Hello Kitty. Maybe Sailor Moon? Sailor Moon. Oh. Wow. <laughs> that, that, actually, maybe some of those cops dress up like Sailor Moon when they're home by themselves. Oh, they might. So. All right, one last story here. It comes from MyMotherLode.com, which is uh, some sort of news site, apparently. I don't know. So, sounds iffy to me, but it comes out of California, so that might uh, explain the name. Sonora, California. Representatives with the Sonora Police Department and both the Tolomi and... Calaveras County Sheriff's Department say they fielded numerous calls early this morning today, August 11th, in regards to a, quote, loud boom and, quote, structure shaking. According to a Sonora Police Department report, there were several calls from residents who reported seeing a, quote, blue light just before the loud boom. The incident reportedly occurred at 12.09 a.m. The police department notes that it also received a call from a resident in Tolomi in which a female reported seeing what she thought was fireworks and then something spiraling over her house. Early indication from the law enforcement agencies is that the loud boom was somehow the result of a meteor shower. That would be the Perseid meteor shower, which is making its annual visit uh, tonight through Monday. Uh, the the uh, chunks of comet debris from the Swift-Tuttle comet that slam into the Earth's atmosphere at 132,000 miles per hour the resulting friction heats up gases in the atmosphere, causing yellow and green glowing streaks in the air. So that's going on all through tonight and tomorrow night, uh, especially tomorrow night. It'll really heat up. And then, of course, on August 28th, we have the total lunar eclipse. The western United States will have the best view. The east coast will, east coast will only be able to see the beginning of it before the moon sets. Another total lunar eclipse will happen on February 21st of 2008, and the entire United States should be able to see that whole one. Uh, if you want to see a total solar eclipse, though, that's not scheduled until 2017. So what do you think, Matt Moniz? Uh, they have some, some blue lights and some loud booms, and they're blaming it on a, on a meteor. Wouldn't they have to find the meteor? Not necessarily. Uh, they, I've seen meteorites blow up in our atmosphere our, you know, right around here, mm-hmm. and I've heard it. Um, so for to have somebody else have it happen out there, no, not out of the realms of possibility. Most, most cases, most meteorites do blow up 
in the atmosphere. See, they very rarely make it to Earth. Seems to me, though, that for the law enforcement agency to, to just make that determination right away, just sounds like lazy police work. The scary part is uh, Don is one of my friends out there in California from Sonora. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, the blue light, the loud boom, and the, eh, let's just blame it on the meteor shower. I don't know. I'm not trying to uh, indict the police department out there. It's just the way the story is presented on MyMotherLoad.com. So there you go. That's the Week and Weird for this week. And, of course, if you have any stories you'd like to submit to the Week and Weird, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the message board, go to the Week and Weird thread, drop the story in there, put a link up with the whole story. If we read it on the air, you will not only get full credit, we will also send you a fabulous Spooky South Coast bumper sticker, limited edition. So uh, just... Do that, and we'll send it off to you. We'll be right back with more. We're going to talk about the Mothman and what the Mothman has to do with the I-35 bridge collapse in Minnesota. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Lost Civilizations extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic, significant, and truthful to say. Keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and the science advisor Matt Moniz. And this is a little bit of paranormal potpourri show tonight. You know, one of the things that uh, has been going around uh, while we've been off the air is uh, for those who you know haven't heard, I don't know how you haven't heard yet, yet the the bridge collapse in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, the, the I-35 West Bridge collapsed at rush hour, uh, 6.05 Central Time, um, back on, what was the date? I forgot now. August 2nd? And on August 11th, eight deaths had been attributed to the collapse while fire... I'm sorry, as of August 11th, eight deaths have been attributed to the collapse while five individuals remain missing and were believed to be dead. And we in no, me, in no way want to uh, harm the memory of those individuals, but we have to address the situation that's been going around. A lot of people are saying that this bridge collapse is somehow tied into the Mothman. Uh, for those who have uh, seen the film The Mothman Prophecies uh, or have read uh, about The Mothman, John Keel's book, of the same title or, or some of the other books out there by uh, Jeff Walmsley or other authors. Uh, the Mothman is supposedly a harbinger of doom. Uh, when you when you see him, nothing good can happen from it. 
Uh, and back on December 15, 1967, the Silver Bridge collapsed uh, over the Ohio River in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And that tragedy, 37 cars and trucks were on the bridge when it fell, uh, and 46 individuals died with 44 bodies found and two bodies never recovered. And this, this comes from Cryptomundo.com, the, the blog site of our friend Lauren Coleman. Despite popular legend, no Mothman was seen that day, according to Lauren, but the banshee-like link between the sightings of the previous 13 months and the Silver Bridge collapse will live forever due to the Mothman Prophecies book and movie. He also says that the Silver Bridge that collapsed on December 15, 1967 was part of U.S. Highway 35, and it collapsed at 5.04 Eastern Time during rush hour. And in 1967, 67 people fell to their death in the water, 46 died. Uh, with the I-35 bridge, that was actually erected in 1967. So there's just some weird weird parallels. So Lauren, who, who couldn't join us tonight because of uh, family commitments, uh, but he was on Coast to Coast last night, and a caller called in from Illinois claiming to have witnessed the Mothman back on June 27th uh, while she was in Stewartville, Minnesota. So could it be somebody, as, as Lauren points out on Cryptomundo, could it be somebody... You know, after the fact, trying to bring up the idea of the Mothman surrounding this bridge collapse. It, there's enough buzz going around uh, that the BBC, as, as Lauren reported, the BBC pulled a showing of the Mothman prophecies uh, that was scheduled for August 7th uh, because uh, they didn't want to have to show that film with its climax where the, the Silver Bridge collapses with uh, this tragedy still fresh in people's minds. Uh, so they, they subbed in and... and showed something else instead but matt you've done a lot of research on all aspects of the paranormal and i'm sure mothman has come up uh, uh, you were talking with me earlier that you actually have you actually know somebody that worked with john keel on that book yeah uh don astrali who's a, he's a good friend of mine he was uh john keel's research assistant uh while writing the mothman prophecies and stuff like that uh he's also featured in um Kiel's book. Well, he was he was one of the quote-unquote victims of the, the Mothman as well. Correct, correct. Uh, like I said, I've known uh, Mr. Estrella for a number of years. Very credible person, very knowledgeable. Uh, he was a page at the UN, a graduate of Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a very straightforward guy. Uh, worked right alongside with Kiel, and uh, he was able to relate to me a number of these... Uh, events that people told about their encounters and how this thing is a harbinger of not just death but various other foreboding things. I mean, I mean, you can't really judge now uh, how many reports came after the fact of other Mothman sightings. Now with the Internet and with the Mothman being in popular culture since 2002 with the release of the film, now it's, it's, it's a little bit more likely that we can track supposed sightings followed by disasters. Um, but again, at the same time, you could be looking at something that's just coincidence. Yeah, but like Don's particular case, uh, his was you know, made poignant to him because his encounter with a Mothman, mm -hmm. uh, within a day or two later, he gets into a rollover wreck, nearly killing himself and his passenger in the vehicle. Actually, I think... His passenger did die, if I recall his story correctly. But um, and this is what would be related by other people that had seen it. Uh, they, they would, in some cases, these people had died that had seen the event, and other people 
related to them if they didn't directly die. There, there, a lot of bad things just happen. It, now, one of the things that went around on the internet, one of these false reports, there was actually a a website that does spoof stories, uh, and they decided to to put out a spoof story saying that the bridge collapse was actually, uh, let's see, spoof dot com. Uh, according to what Lauren reported, floated a silly fake story that the U.S. government used an acoustic gun named Mothman to bring down the bridge, a low-frequency weapon. Uh, ELF. Yeah. Uh, now, what's interesting is supposedly the Russians did pick up a big ELF spike. And, you know, the University of um, Missouri is one of the... Um, spots where the United States Army does do weapon research. So is that just a matter, though, of somebody taking some actual true information and kind and, of bending and it? To, and yeah. possibly bending it, yes. I mean, it just seems like, uh, first of all, it's in bad taste to, I mean, to, to make a spoof story surrounding a tragedy like this. That's just me. Um, but at the same time, you know, to, to put something out as a real news report and actually have it being picked up by other news sites and treated as real, that only creates more confusion. And when that spoof is based in fact, as you're saying, uh, it only makes that line harder to distinguish. Right, because we know that, you know, the University of Missouri does have uh, research labs that the military does run there, just like they have them in various other universities around here. Now, and, yes, the Russians are always monitoring us. Yes, we're picking up signals from them and what they do, and they pick up stuff from us. But uh, these people are taking those little bits of information, and they're weaving a contrived story around it, taking bits of fact and, you know, swaying it to their to make their own story. And, and hopefully that's what's happening with these uh, supposed Mothman sightings as well. Now, um there's been a lot of Mothman sightings uh, in the last year or so. Uh, 2007 has been a, a pretty big year, and, and in Pennsylvania there's been a lot of Mothman sightings uh, recently. Um, I, did have, uh, I did have a chance to speak with Jeff Walmsley earlier today, and uh, he was traveling, so I didn't really get a chance to um, talk about it with him in great detail. But uh, next month, of course, is the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, and uh, Jeff is one of the coordinators of that event. He's uh, the author of two books on the subject, so we're going to have him come back uh, hopefully next month prior to the conference, and we'll have him join us and give us the whole background and, and some of the more latest reports, and of course, hopefully we can get John Keel and, and Lauren Coleman involved in that discussion as well. But it is something that's still happening today. It is something that people still report. What is it that they report? What do they report seeing? What is this Mothman creature described as? Generally as a human-sized being uh, with large red glowing eyes and wings. Uh, some report clawed feet. Um, they, it's seen generally hanging in a tree or standing in a tree. Uh, it's been known to chase people and vehicles to the point of even damaging vehicles, running them off the road. If you've ever seen this creature or, or you think you've seen it, please give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We'd love to hear your account uh, of an encounter with the Mothman. I, I think that, you know, if it is some sort of omen, uh, some sort of uh, sign of destruction, um, 
everybody gives it this negative connotation, but it could also be serving as a warning as well. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a negative presence. It could be something that is coming there to warn you, and it just goes through extreme means to get the message across. Yeah. Um, uh, there's been some discussion uh, that it could be, you know, alien-related, that it could be UFO-related. Uh, there's been others. Others saying interdimensionally-related. Yep. Others saying it's an old uh, Native American spirit. Uh, some believe. Some actually believe it's a cryptid. Some think it's actually yeah. a real existing creature. Uh, but what are some of the things that people have thrown out there as possibilities, though? It, if people are just imagining this creature and they're actually seeing, you know, something else, like when people thought a manatee was a mermaid. True. I, I, I've heard sandhill crane. I've heard white owl. I've heard uh, snowy owl. I've heard you know, giant thunderbird even as a as a logical explanation for what it could be. Ninety percent of the reports were uh, reported at night. This thing seen in a um, a flashlight or headlights of a vehicle. There have been other, I believe, daylight sightings of the thing. Um, yeah, a large bird. You know, you know how when a dog reflects light, its eyes can look somewhat red mm -hmm. at the, night. The reflective eyes, yeah. Right, and then you have owls, which have actually very large eyes. Um, even though they hunt acoustically with their ears, but they also have extremely large eyes because they have to take in enough light to navigate visually, you know, at night. So any light reflecting off of their eyes would turn red. And some owls can get extremely large. Actually, I think the only second, you know, second largest birds here in the United States, so the first top, top one being the American bald eagle. Well, when you look at the uh, area, especially around Point Pleasant and West Virginia, you know, it, it's very dense wooded areas and very conducive to owls thriving and growing to be quite large. I've driven through there at 3 o'clock in the morning coming back from Kentucky and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been <laughs> it gets What's dark and there are some very big plans. owls. Oh, yeah. So, but, uh, so what, what do we think about these reports coming out? What, do we take these to heart as we would, you know, the Mothman reports that happened in 1967, do we take these under that same consideration? Do we think of it as, you know, as somebody that sees something in the media and they latch on to it? Uh, some people are going to claim that they saw it just to create a hoax. I mean, how, how reasonably can we take these accounts into effect? Because if it did indeed it happen... It depends upon the person. It depends the, upon the credibility of the person. That's true. But, I mean, we really can't judge, you know, we don't know these people and... We, we depend on somebody like Lauren Coleman to take in these reports and, and make those determinations, but could this mean that with these increased sightings of the Mothman and now this has happened, uh, could we be seeing more destruction in the future? Uh, now, you're just bringing up the Mothman because it's a bridge collapse. You know, granted, when I first well, saw I mean, I'm not. People are bringing it up. But it, yeah. 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 We, uh, That's why we're talking about it. Right. Yeah. You know, when I first saw that the bridge collapsed, that was one of the first things that went through my head. You know, okay, has anybody seen the Mothman in relation to this? Because I immediately went back to the bridge that happened in 1967 over the Ohio River. But um, most people are forgetting, you know, the bridge that collapsed in Ohio wasn't being worked on. This bridge had 
sections mm -hmm. of it removed. There was heavy construction. They were, you know, they were physically working on the bridge. Obviously, the bridge's structure is dramatically weakened, so it's going to have a greater chance to fail. So, I mean, with the Mothman being first and foremost in people's minds, is it, can we just expect that with any kind of disaster now? If there's going to be a certain segment of the population that's going to say, oh, Mothman, Mothman must be related to this somehow. He must have predicted this. Yeah, well, what's interesting is even in 1967, there really were no real reports of the Mothman being anywhere near or on the bridge. Oh, well, there were a couple, but none really truly credible. Mm -hmm. So are you going to say that the Mothman caused the bridge to collapse, or was just the bridge collapse part of something that else that was going on that this being or whatever decided to be there at that time because all of this other stuff was going to go. What, what do you think it is? What do you think this Mothman creature is? Well, its description is a chimera. A chimera is a collection of various other animal parts. Um, I think it's something that people see subconsciously. Although it may look real, it may even have a real manifestation, you know, to it mm -hmm. to the point where the person seeing it is, you know, uh, believing that it's there. Now, what makes me believe that that isn't 100% of the case is when you have multiple witnesses seeing the same thing at the same time. Yeah. I can hallucinate all I want and see whatever I want, but it's no way can make the person next to me see the same thing. And, and yeah. back in 1966, uh, when the uh, sightings first started uh, occurring, um, there was five uh, five people who saw it the first time, and then two young married couples driving a car uh, a little bit later on, a couple days later. And they were attacked so. actually in the car, that's the particular case I recall. So, I mean, you know, like you said, these are multiple witnesses seeing the same thing. So, and I, I'm not going to I'm not gonna jump into the mass hysteria idea either, because that I, I'd sooner believe that there's a strange creature known as the Mothman that I'd believe that five people and then four people would all have the same delusion. Or they may not be a delusion. They all may be, to take the skeptical view, uh, misidentifying another natural well, creature. And all it takes is for one person to say, hey, look, a guy with wings, and right. that's what the other person sees. sees. Correct. All right, why don't we take this call before we have to take a break? Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? All right. Good. Uh, since I was a kid, I've heard different stories and different versions, but just until, like, the movie came out, I never heard it um, referred to as a Mothman. You, but you'd heard of the same creature just with, yeah. without yeah. using that name? Yeah, I just, um, and as an adult, uh, see, I'm a gunsmith. I, I deal with a lot of hunters, and, um, you know, they're really out there in the woods, and, you know, once in a while you get a story out of some of them. Yeah, they'll come in and say, oh, you won't believe what I saw out well, there. Yeah, they'll, you know, because, and I'll find myself asking, so, you know, especially these guys have been doing it like, like 30, 35 years. This is ever seen anything, you know. And and so uh, this this creature has been described in, in this area, on the South Coast area? The last, well, I won't say last, but I remember one, uh, 19, maybe 1975. 70, no, 76, in, uh, near the waterfront. And it says this, it was like a, maybe a 12-foot, 14-foot wingspan. 
least 12 people saw it. So, again, multiple witnesses, Moniz, like you were saying. Um, Where was this? Actually, uh, right in the South 2nd Street area. Okay. And um, Along the Hurricane Dyke area? No, right, uh, I'd say, you know, uh, area, you know, Amarillo's and Greece are Yep. Right in that area around there. Okay. And they were having, anyway, they had, uh, it was in the backyard, and they heard this, like, the whooshing sound, or whatever you want to call it, and it was, it was low. It was, it went, I mean, it went over them and scared the heck out of all of them. And, uh, what did they describe? What did they describe seeing? It looked like a big giant. The way they said all of them, actually, uh, it was a big giant bird, but a big, huge wingspan. Because, I mean, they felt it. They felt it. I, I, I hate to, to say the word common, but it could be just a common thunderbird. <laughs> you know, yeah. I know I hate to use that word, but it could be, you know, uh, Still one of these strange creatures that we talk about here, but not the Mothman per se. You know what I mean? Because it was, it, and it was, you know, I mean, there was dark, so they didn't describe anything mm-hmm. about a man. But I mean, different well, stories. They they did mention, you know, man-like or whatever. But the weird thing that actually some of them said that I found strange. Um, they thought they were angels. That's that's what they thought it was. Yeah. I've heard that from a couple of people. What do you mean, angels? How can anything? I didn't. I, I you know. I just. It, yeah, it does seem like a strange correlation to make. But then again, right. you know, people of faith, people who who are strong in their faith, that's going to be what they go to first. Yeah, they felt it was angels, but it wasn't. You know, not bad, but just that. So this didn't have a, a malevolent presence to it that they could. No, tell? no. Actually, the people I did talk to and. Well, over the years, whatever they, nobody ever described it as uh, what they saw, whatever they saw. Like I say, sometimes it could be eagles. I mean, well, as far as you can remember, was there any kind of uh, negative event that happened after these sightings, like like with these supposed Mothman sightings? No, not one. No, they just, I guess, most of it was just they, you know scared the heck out of them. It was, it was just huge. It was just too big. It was just too big just to be, uh, you know, a normal bird. I says, well, you know, I says the, the whole thing that hurts there. I says, you can see whatever you want. I says, if you don't have a picture or something, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, I says, forget it. No matter what. I mean, I've saw things. You, I mean, and you hate to bring them up unless you, you know, you you've had, you got a camera with you. And, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, none of them describe it as bad or evil. But I mean, my, I mean, this is since a kid. I mean, I remember elders even seeing about big, gi- these big giant things. That they they believed it was angels, hmm. and they the way they they just said uh, they. I think they said they were angels were more or less trying to. They didn't know how to talk to us. They couldn't communicate with us. There is a there is a theory out there, and it was talked about on on coast to coast as well that that uh, the the Mothman himself could be an angel, could be some sort of an angel. Uh, a fallen angel or a nephilim or he could even be you know the angel of death mm-hmm. i mean just i mean because they give you the creeps too when you say that's the angels it's geez why is that but actually it was strange a couple of them said it i said i just I said, why why angel why picking up i guess they associated the two is the one that did think it looked somewhat like a man i guess mm-hmm. the only thing they could visualize you know a man flying would be an angel 
But yeah. none of them ever, like I said, never anything bad or you know, evil or being chased. You know, but right. uh, the, like I said, the closest one that I know of was in '76 and was actually went on the block for me. And I know everybody that was there, and they said that's the one that you know scared them all. But they said they didn't really see any, you know, couldn't see a human being or what looked like a human being. It's just it was huge. It was too big to be an eagle or whatever. But anyways, right. well, we thank you for calling in and sharing. We got to take a break before uh, before the end of the show. So. Thank you for calling in. You're welcome. Take care. All right, yes, we do have to take one more break, and then when we come back, we'll wrap things up for this week. So stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast. It blew books off shelves from 20 feet away and scared the socks off some poor librarian. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. This looks extraordinarily bad. <laughs> Somebody blows their nose and you want to keep it? <laughs> Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with Matt Costa and Matt Moniz. And uh, we just have a couple of minutes left here on the show uh, before we have to say goodnight. Now, next week, the Red Sox are back on at uh, 6.30, 6.25 pregame time here on WBSM. So we will be on uh, immediately following. Hopefully, they don't go into extra innings so we can actually get on the air. Uh, and then in two weeks, our guest will be Richard Salva, who has written a book called From Lincoln to Lindbergh. Uh, it's a spiritual journey. It's it's all about how Charles Lindbergh was the reincarnated soul of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, he makes a pretty uh, convincing argument. I'm, I'm reading it right now. Of course, you have to fundamentally believe in reincarnation before you can believe this book. And I'm still working on that part of it, Matt. I don't know if, you're, if you've been reading it and, and what you think so far. I'm not sure how I feel about reincarnation itself, but it is an interesting book. Nice. It, and and I read a book uh, called The Plot Against America about Lindbergh sympathizing with the Nazis. So, And I didn't really know about Lindbergh the man. So this is kind of giving me a, a background. Of course, Plot Against America, fictional, I should point that out. And then uh, on September 1st, our guest will be John Kachuba, who has written a book all about ghost hunting with different approaches, different uh, going out with psychics, going out with scientific investigators, going out with religious investigators. And so he will talk to us about his experiences checking out all those different approaches, which is, of course, something that we've tried to do, uh, and we try to bring that to you each week, but hopefully uh, John can sum everything all up. And, of course, we'll have tons of great shows coming up for you as we get closer to the Halloween holiday, and we'll keep you up to date on all the fall activities going on as well. It seems strange talking about fall in the middle of August, but I don't know. It was the weather today. It was so nice and chilly that I'm in an autumn kind of mind. I spent all day on my bike. Well, you must have been freezing. I enjoyed it. Uh, and also, uh, by the way, uh, for those who are following all things Spooky South Coast, we still uh, we still have up there the David Omen episode from two weeks ago, so don't forget to download that. Some fascinating stuff. And uh, every episode goes up on iTunes and on SpookySouthCoast.com, wherever you get podcasts each week. So for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow. 
supernaturalist.